0: In connection with Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we read John 19. We're going to read the first 18 verses of the chapter. This portion of the Heidelberg Catechism is explaining the article, He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. So we read the narrative in John concerning that. John 19, verses 1 through 18. Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate had already been interrogating Jesus. That's recorded in the previous chapter. Now he takes Jesus and scourges him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! and they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again, and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Where they crucified him, and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. We read that far. Let's hear the instruction of the Reformed faith in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 15. Remembering that this is among those things which are necessary for Christians to believe. What dost thou understand by the words, He suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so by his passion, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, He might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed." Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me. For the death of the cross was accursed of God. As Christians, we confess, as we did today, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. There were many, many people in the days of the Apostles who stumbled over the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. They stumbled over that fact of history. Stumbling, they did not believe in Jesus. They did not believe that this Jesus, who suffered and was crucified, could possibly be the Messiah for whom they were waiting and looking He could not be the Messiah. He suffered, and he died on a cross. Nevertheless, the apostles of Jesus were not shy in their gospel accounts and in their epistles to describe and to discuss at length the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And they did that because they knew from the scriptures that the sufferings of Christ much less than proving that he wasn't the Christ, proved exactly that he was the Christ. They knew that, and they argued from Scripture that Christ must needs have suffered and died and risen again the third day, as it was prophesied in the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures. They knew what Isaiah prophesied in that amazing and well-known Chapter 53, that when Christ comes, he will be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah prophesied that when Christ comes, he will be stricken, smitten of God. He will be wounded for our transgressions. He will be bruised for our iniquities. Jesus knew that prophecy too. In fact, he came into this world to fulfill that prophecy, which was a revelation from God of what Christ will come to do. Jesus knew it well. And in Matthew 16, we read earlier in his ministry that he told his disciples, quote, that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Peter didn't want to hear it. He said, No, Lord, far be it from thee. But Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Because this was what he had come to do. This was his mission. This was his goal, to suffer and to be crucified. Did Jesus just make a good prediction? Was he just good at predicting things as he observed the flow of the events in the world around him so that he predicted that he would suffer? No. Jesus knew what would happen in Jerusalem. He knew these things must come to pass. He knew them because he was not a mere man. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God in our flesh. And we must keep that before us this afternoon as we consider the sufferings of Christ. We're not considering the sufferings of a mere man, but the sufferings of the eternal Son of God in our flesh. Because if this is only the sufferings of a man, it has no value to us for salvation. But it being the sufferings of God's Son, it has infinite value for us. So I call your attention to The Lord's Day under the theme, the sufferings of Christ. Notice, first of all, the nature of his suffering. Secondly, the reason for his suffering. Finally, the purpose of his suffering. The Catechism asks us here, what dost thou understand by the words, he suffered? As we all know very well, suffering is the experience of pain whether that pain is in your body or in your mind or in your soul, that's suffering. What does it mean? What do you understand when you confess every Sunday, I believe that he suffered? The Catechism teaches us that this suffering of Christ was something that happened all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life. And we can add to that, This suffering was something he experienced, especially in the last week of his life, which we commonly know as the Passion Week. The Catechism also speaks of his passion, and when we think of the word passion, we think of zeal or enthusiasm, but that's not the idea here. The word passion means suffering. The Passion Week was the last week of his life on this earth, and in that week, his sufferings increased more and more. Even before Jesus went up to Jerusalem that last time, he was suffering as he anticipated what was coming when he went to Jerusalem. He knew what was coming. And as he took every step down the path of the road up to Jerusalem, anticipating what would happen there in the city, he was suffering mental anguish as he came into the city and joined with his disciples in the upper room for the last Passover, and as he there took bread and he broke the bread, and he passed the wine around the table, he was suffering as he anticipated that this breaking of bread and this pouring of wine was a sign and seal of the breaking of his own body and the shedding of his blood which was about to take place. And then as Jesus with his disciples went out, Of Jerusalem into the Garden of Gethsemane. We are told that he himself said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And as he went into the garden in the darkness of the night to pray, he prayed, My Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And as he prayed in agony, we are told that as it were great drops of blood dropped down from his face as he anticipated the suffering that was about to come. And as one of his former disciples, Judas Iscariot, entered into the garden in the darkness with a band of soldiers carrying swords and staves and torches in the night, and Judas went up to him and betrayed him with a kiss his heart was stabbed with pain and suffering to be betrayed by one of those in his closest circle of disciples. As he was led off in the night through the road to the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, and as he spent the night there in the palace, he suffered intense pain, mental anguish as they brought witness after witness in their attempt to convict him But those witnesses spoke lies, falsehoods, pointing at him, accusing him of things he didn't do and things he didn't say. Until at last, the high priest himself said, tell us, are you the Christ? And he said, you say that, and you say correctly. And he said, what further need have we of witnesses? He has spoken blasphemy. And they convicted him unjustly and condemned him of a crime that was nothing more than this, that he claimed to be who he really was, the Christ, the Son of God. And then led away to Pontius Pilate. His suffering increased his mental anguish as he stood before the Roman governor, the representative of the world power of that day, who out of his fear for Caesar condemned an innocent man to the death of the cross, for no other crime than claiming to be a king, claiming to be that he came into this world to be a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. The anguish and the suffering of Christ was great, and it increased in intensity throughout that week. Not only did he suffer this mental, emotional agony as the week dragged on, but he also experienced bodily pain and suffering in the house of Caiaphas, having been supposedly convicted of the crime of blasphemy, they spit in his face, and as the saliva of ungodly men dripped down his face, they slapped his face, and they buffeted him, and they punched him, And leading him away to Pontius Pilate. Pilate, not knowing what to do with him, decided to scourge him, and he set, lo- set loose his band of soldiers, who took the cruel whip with the barbs on the end and smote his back with it again and again, tearing up his flesh and causing him to bleed. And then they took a crown of thorns in their mockery and in their sadistic cruelty and pressed it down upon his head, piercing his head, causing the blood and the searing pain to shoot through his body until at last They stripped off his clothes and forced him to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, to the hill of Golgotha, the place of a skull, where they laid him on that cross and took their long iron nails and pounded them through his hands and feet, piercing his skin and flesh and affixing him to the wooden cross, lifting him up between two criminals to be mocked and jeered at and reviled by all the passersby, to become a spectacle to the whole world. He suffered. He suffered greatly. But when the Heidelberg Catechism wants to teach us about the nature of the suffering of Christ, it mentions none of these things. But the Heidelberg Catechism would have us to understand that The nature of the suffering of Christ is much worse, much more profound than that. The Catechism would have us to look deeper, to look beyond the surface of the things that we can imagine, the things that we read on the pages of the gospel narratives, would have us to look beyond those things, terrible as they were, yet things which were common to man. Some of those things just mentioned are things we've suffered. And there are even men in the history of the world who have suffered things very similar in a combination of such things, of mental, emotional, and physical suffering. The catechism would have us to look deeper and to confess this, that all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. The deepest nature of the suffering of Christ is that in his body and in his soul, he was suffering the wrath of God. All of those other sufferings were pointers, directing our attention to that deeper and more profound suffering When he experienced the wrath of man, spitting on him, striking him, beating him, scourging him, condemning him unjustly, betraying him, Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God. Jesus was experiencing the wrath of his Father in heaven. And the wrath of God is God's infinite and intense displeasure, toward the sinner. God does not have wrath toward anyone but toward the sinner. And the wrath of God is toward the sinner because of his sins. And the wrath of God is his displeasure, which is also his will, his desire, his intention to consume that sinner in the flames of his fiery indignation, to cast that sinner into the lake of of fire and brimstone that will never be quenched. Christ suffered that infinite wrath of God all his life long and especially at the end of his life. The wrath of God. The wrath of the God who loved him from all eternity. The wrath of the God who dwelled with him as the Son of God in the Trinity, in the bonds of perfect love and peace and joy for all eternity, that God, that God who never ceased to love him, even when he poured his wrath upon him, that God caused him to experience during his life on earth, and especially at the end of his life, he caused him to experience in his mind and in his soul fiery indignation and wrath in his body and in his soul. Furthermore, the Catechism teaches us that the nature of the suffering of Christ is this, and we confess that he suffered the severe judgment of God. Under Pontius Pilate, the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. God is not only holy, And in his holiness, he burns in his wrath and desire to consume those ungodly and wicked men and women who violate his law. But God is also just, and in his justice, he cannot but punish with perfect and severe judgment those who transgress and violate his commandments. The Catechism speaks of a severe judgment. The judgment of God is not light, it is not gentle. God does not tolerate the transgression of his law. God does not merely slap on the wrist those who break his law. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't turn away from it. His judgment is severe. What is that severe judgment? The scriptures teach us that the severe judgment of God is to bind the transgressor of his law in the chains of darkness and to cast him into the everlasting prison of hell. Christ suffered the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. When he was condemned by an earthly and temporal judge, Pontius Pilate, when he heard that sentence of condemnation come down from Pilate, he received it and he felt it, not so much as the condemnation of a merely human judge, but he felt it as the condemnation of God. the just and righteous God of the whole universe. Further still, the Catechism would have us to understand by the words he suffered, that he suffered the curse which lay upon me. The wrath of God against the sins of all mankind, the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed, And now the catechism would have us think very personally, the curse which lay upon me. That's what he suffered. The curse which lay upon me, because I, like you, am a member of the human race. And as a member of the human race, we fell in our first parents in the Garden of Eden when we rebelled against him, when we turned against our God, when we took the forbidden fruit in our desire to be like God in our pride and in our rebellion and disobedience, we brought down upon ourselves that curse. And the curse of God is the word of his mighty power. Just as a blessing is the word of his grace and favor, the curse is the word of his mighty power. To kill the sinner. God said in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And that death is something that God would execute. And how does he execute it? By his word. By his curse. He lays the curse upon me. Because I deserve it. I deserve death. Because of my sin. And that curse. Pushes. The sinner into eternal and temporal death. Christ suffered the curse of God. And how do we know that? Because he was nailed to a cross. And as the Catechism teaches us, there is something to that death. Then, if he had died in some other way, he didn't drown, he wasn't shot, he wasn't strangled, he didn't die from sickness, he was crucified. Why? Because thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse that lay upon me. Why? Because the death of the cross was accursed. That's what God revealed in the law of Moses. God particularly arranged that there would be one form of death in this world that would symbolize the curse. And that form of death was the cross, as Moses said, Whosoever hangeth upon a tree is accursed of God. Jesus was nailed with those sharp, cruel nails, his hands and feet pierced and affixed to the wooden beam, and hung up, lifted up for all the world to jeer and to hate. Suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by men and rejected by God, forsaken by the God of heaven. That's the curse. The curse pushes the sinner out of this world. The curse pushes the sinner into darkness. The curse kills the sinner for his sins. That's what he suffered. And that's why, after three hours of darkness on the cross, he cried out in agony, My God, my God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God. That's what he felt. That's what he suffered. All the sufferings of Christ in the scriptures are pointers, pointing us to that deeper nature of his suffering. Why did he suffer such an awful thing? He suffered the wrath and judgment and curse of God. The Catechism teaches us on account of the sins of all mankind. Not on account of his own sins. And that too must be made abundantly plain. God has determined that all the world will know that Jesus Christ has no sin. And that's the significance of the trial under Pontius Pilate. The Catechism teaches, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he being innocent. Innocent and yet condemned. That's what we discovered in the passage that we read. Pilate is scourging Jesus and condemning Jesus. But what comes out of the mouth of Pilate? In verse 4, I bring him forth to you that you may know, I find no fault in him. That's what he said. And he didn't say it once. He said it repeatedly. He says it again. In verse 6, when the Jews say, Crucify him, crucify him, Pilate saith unto him, You take, you take him, you crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Pilate found no fault in him. And who was Pilate? Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. Pilate was the man who was appointed by Caesar to rule in the province of Judea. Pilate, therefore, was the representative of the Roman Empire, which was the world power of that day. Pilate represented a civilization and an empire which in many ways has been considered the height of human civilization as a culture, a society, an empire that developed not through common grace but that that developed through the providence of God a system of law and government and justice that was unlike any other. The Romans were intent on rendering a just verdict They were intent on upholding of their laws. Pilate was trained in that system, in that society. Pilate was trained as a governor and as a judge to look for the facts of the case, to find those facts, to interrogate with a view to finding those facts. Pilate was trained to condemn the guilty and to acquit the innocent on the basis of the facts, the evidence, the testimony. Pilate was taught to do that rigorously and consistently. That was Pilate. And Pilate interrogated Jesus. For a long time he interrogated him. And he listened to to the accusations. And he studied the whole case. And repeatedly, Pilate said, I find no fault. I find no fault. He's not guilty of your accusations. Pilate declared that to the Jews. There was a declaration of innocence. When that declaration of innocence was made by Pilate from his podium, before the multitude. God himself was making a declaration to all mankind. This Jesus is innocent. This Jesus is not only innocent of all charges of rebellion and sedition against the Roman government. This Jesus is innocent of all crimes, of all sins before my holy law. Jesus, God, will have us know and will have the whole world to know that Jesus is righteous. He is holy. He is without sin. He is without spot and blemish. He is not worthy of condemnation. He is not worthy of judgment and the curse and the wrath of God in himself. And yet, he was condemned. And he was crucified. Why? Why such terrible suffering for the Son of God who had no sin, who was pure and innocent and without guile, Who spoke the truth and did righteousness his whole life? The reason is that he bore the sins of all mankind on his shoulders. As John the Baptist once declared Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. All mankind fell into sin in Adam so also Christ sustained the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind on the cross. That's what the Catechism teaches. That is, he not only suffered on the cross for one sin of one man. That would be bad enough nor did he suffer on the cross merely for all the sins of one man. That would be terrible indeed. He didn't merely suffer on the cross and the wrath of God for all the sins of two men, or three men, or four men, or a group of men, or a nation of men. But he suffered on the cross the wrath and fiery judgment of God Against all of the sins of all mankind. An unimaginable burden of sin and an unimaginable amount of agony. Not to say that he suffered the wrath of God against the sins of every single human being. I'm not preaching universal atonement. That's the Arminian lie that Jesus suffered for the sins of every single human being. That's not what I said. That's not what the Catechism says. That's not what the Scripture says. But the Scripture says he suffers for the sin of the world. And the Catechism says he sustained the wrath of God against the sins of of all mankind, of the whole human race, literally. Not universal atonement, not an atonement, not a salvation that is available for every single person, because if Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you are saved. But we know that not all men are saved. Rather, the Catechism is teaching us here that Jesus Christ bore in his body and soul, the sins of all the elect in all the world and in all the nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues of the world. The atonement of Christ is limited to the elect, but the elect are not limited to one nation. That's the point. The elect are found throughout the world. And to understand the greatness of the sufferings of Christ, we have to understand that he bore the sins of all the elect in all the nations of all the world throughout all of time and history. The organism of mankind, as in Adam, all died, so all those who are in Christ, the elect, shall be made alive through his suffering. That's what the Canons of Dort teaches and clarifies for us in Head 2, Article 8, which teaches the truth of limited atonement, but also the truth that that atonement is for the elect in all the world. This was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem, listen, out of every people, tribe, nation, and language. That's all mankind. All those and those only, that's the limited atonement, who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. And that's what the Catechism means in our Lord's day. And that too shows us why we must be busy with worldwide missions. Not like the Arminian who believes that Jesus died for every single soul, but only makes salvation available so that we must do missions, so that we give everybody a chance, so that everybody will have an opportunity to exercise their free will and accept this salvation, not that. But this, we must be busy with worldwide missions because he died for people. He suffered for people. In Africa, of the black race and in Asia, of the yellow race and the brown race. He suffered for people in all nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues. And then, too, we are not to fail to note that he sustained that wrath of God. That's the meaning of his suffering. He sustained it. The Catechism shifts the word there. What do you understand when you say He suffered? That He sustained. We expect the Catechism to say that He suffered. But it says that He sustained. Because the suffering of Christ is not like our suffering, we suffer too. But almost always when we suffer, we suffer passively. We don't choose that suffering. We don't want that suffering. We don't take that suffering upon ourselves. We strive to avoid it. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to get injured. We don't want to get beat up. We don't want to get mocked, reviled. We don't want to be murdered. We avoid it with all of our power. We don't like suffering. But it does happen to us, doesn't it? It happens to us. Not so with the suffering of Christ. He suffered actively. He took that suffering. He took it. He chose it. And even though in the Garden of Gethsemane, he shrank from it, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But we notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I refuse to drink the cup. didn't say that. If it is thy will, I will drink it. And the Father said, it is my will. And he drank it. He chose it. He accepted it. He actively sustained it. comes out in our chapter 2 when Pilate boastfully says to Jesus, don't you know that I have power to crucify thee or to release thee? And Jesus reminds him, no, 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 you don't have any power against me unless it is given to you from above. I'm the one in charge here, Pilate. I'm taking this suffering and I'm going to sustain it for my people. And that's what he did on the cross until it was finished. What then was his purpose? He had a purpose. He was a man with a purpose, the son of God on a mission. His suffering was not in vain. Sometimes we feel that our suffering is in vain. We feel that it's pointless, that it serves no purpose. That's not true. All of our sufferings do serve a purpose. But how much more are the sufferings of Christ? And his purpose was first of all this, according to the Catechism, to redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation. Or, to put it differently, to free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Or in a third way, to take away from me the curse that lay upon me. That was his purpose, first of all. He was on a mission to save us, to redeem and rescue us from the everlasting damnation that we made ourselves worthy of. We deserve that. We deserve all the suffering that he endured. Even the nicest of us. We deserve it. We are the sinners, not he. We are the transgressors, not he. We are the guilty ones. We desire to be consumed in the wrath of God's fiery indignation. Consumed cast into the lake of fire and brimstone that never is quenched. We deserve to be bound up in those chains of darkness and cast into the prison of hell. We deserve that severe judgment and curse of death. He came. He suffered to redeem us from it. He suffered in our place because of his great love for us. He did it as a propitiatory sacrifice. The only propitiatory sacrifice. Your suffering does not redeem you. It doesn't save you. His suffering redeems. It's a sacrifice that propitiates, that appeases the wrath of God. By drinking the cup of the wrath of God, he exhausted it so that there is no more wrath against us, no judgment, no condemnation, no curse, no curse. But in the second place, the purpose of his suffering was positively To obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. In the Garden of Eden, we had all those things. We lost them. We lost them by our own willful disobedience. We cast them away as something to be despised and trampled under our feet. Who wants the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life? We want it to be God. And we cannot obtain them back. There's nothing we can do to obtain them back. We can't obtain them by our own works, by our own sufferings, by our own righteousness. That's something that we've learned a little bit more sharply in our recent church controversy. We've learned that we cannot say that we must do good works in order to obtain something. That we can do good works in order to obtain something from God. That either because of our good works or by our good works, either as the condition or as the instrument, doesn't matter how you put it, we don't do good works and we can't do good works in order to obtain any blessing from God. That's impossible. Because to obtain, to do something, to obtain it is to fulfill the condition that must be done to merit and to earn it. That's what Christ did. Christ merited it. He earned it by his sufferings. That was the purpose of his sufferings. That's what the Catechism says explicitly. That's the Reformed faith. He suffered. Why? To obtain for us favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life, all the blessings of salvation, all the blessings of the covenant, righteousness. He suffered in order to obtain for us the gift of faith and to give us that gift by which we may receive his righteousness by faith alone. He suffered in order to obtain for us the gift of repentance. Whereas we so often fail to repent. Whereas we so often make excuses for our sins. We blame everyone else for our sins. We justify ourselves. We justify ourselves. We build walls and strongholds in our souls as if we haven't done anything wrong. Christ suffered on the cross to obtain for us the gift of repentance. And He gives it to us. So that not by means of our repentance, but in the way of our repentance, He may give us the experience of God's favor. And finally, He suffered to obtain for us eternal life. What a great purpose. He suffered, He was crucified to obtain for us everlasting life. So that as long as we live in this life, we may know, as we deny ourselves, as we take up our crosses and follow him, we may know that all the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Do you believe and Jesus Christ, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified for you. Believe. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for the crucified one. We find in him all of our comfort, all of our hope, all of our salvation. We thank Thee this day that Thou hast once again proclaimed to us that blessed message of him who suffered so much, so unimaginably much, that although we try to understand it a little bit through reading of the narratives, we are impressed by the horrible sufferings he experienced in his body. We thank thee that thou dost give us even a greater understanding of his sufferings of thy wrath against our sins. So as we look to Christ today, grant that we might not so much be filled with pity for him, but rather sorrow for our sins and gratitude that thou hast provided such a great Savior who has done such great things for us. In whose name we pray, amen.